In this episode, I take to the mic solo without my articulate co-host Mads to meet James Fish Gill, a heart coach, yoga teacher and transformational facilitator. Fish shares his own learnings and teachings about how to see the beauty in conflict, the power of curiosity in relationships and why certainty is almost always a red flag. From giving himself permission to feel joy even while coaching others who are experiencing their own deep pain, to finding ways to acknowledge and validate himself, we explore themes of abandonment, hurt and blame. And Fish shares the two non-negotiable rituals that he practices to soothe and support himself almost every day. If you've ever experienced conflict in a relationship, and let's face it, who hasn't, or if you long to give and receive more understanding, compassion and love, then Fish has some gems for you. And if you'd like tools that trigger safety rather than attack or defend cycles with a partner, parent, child, sibling or peer, then join us for some coaching tips that will help you see the goodness in others and help them see the goodness in you. Here's my heartfelt chat with the wholehearted fish. Fish, thanks for joining me on Human Cogs. I'm actually going to start with something that you wrote because it's how I found you and it was these words that resonated so deeply with me that led me to reach out to you. So um, this was something you posted in August recently, I think. I hope it's good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's got a big drum roll. This is what you said. And I hope they're your words too. If there's any pla- pl- plagiarism, we're going to find out. These are your words. My dad was my teacher in the moments he laid a blanket out in the backyard at nightfall. In his restless wandering at the light years between a billion stars, my heart became more vast. My lovers were my teachers in each moment they loved me, lost me or left me. In their restless yearning to reconcile love and pain, my heart came to no depth. If you're going to teach me, then teach me with the questions that burn in you, what you long for, what you ache with. When you do, I come to see me in you, to see us in them, so us and them may dissolve. You can keep your prison of certainty. I will wander the fields of curiosity freely until I die with wondering. If your teachings are rigid, structured and certain, then share them as a path deeper into the not knowing, because there's nothing sure when what is personal touches what is universal. And then my favourite paragraph, teach me of my humanness by showing me yours. Be raw, be real, be ragged around the edges. That's what I trust. And it does go on, but it was that final, that, that paragraph that really spoke to me. So tell us, you describe yourself as you're a heart coach, a yoga teacher and a transformational facilitator. What does being a heart coach mean and what do these words mean to you? Well, you've opened me. <laughs> uh, put me right back into that, where that came from. So thank you. That was, that was a beautiful little gift to give me back. You know, when we think of a normal coach, like when we think of a sporting coach, there's someone that we can rely on for to kind of correct our course. There's someone that we assume has some knowledge of what we're trying to win at. (laughs) 
and um, has experience of the highs and lows of that and can be there to remind us to just get back out. I don't use often use sporting analogies, but here we go, to get back out on the field and just be in the flow of the game. And here are some things to correct our course. You know, the coach, I recently heard a little bit of Simon Goodwin, the Melbourne AFL coach, talking about what his message was to his team at halftime. And then they turned around the AFL grand final and won it by an enormous margin. And it really was around, you know, like just just tiny little reminders about correcting our course. We know our course. <laughs> we know what we're yearning for. We know what we're committed to. We know what works in us. We know what feels good. But we need reminders correcting our course. And when I come back to all the teachings of the heart, the communication tools I use and also the yogic teachings around, around love and relationship, we are thrown off course by the mind. Something happens in our life, some moment of uncertainty or conflict between us and those we love. And then the mind comes up with a very certain story and the narrative there quite instantaneously and without our choosing becomes me versus you. There's a me and there's a you and we're kind of pitted against each other. And I consider my role as a heart coach to remind people how to come back into the heart because the heart doesn't know the language of right and wrong. The heart doesn't know me as separate to you. And when I can guide people back through the use of some fairly simple but fairly profound tools, when we can come back into our heart, we can actually feel into other people as deeply as we can feel into ourselves. And when we do that, everything, all conflict is transformed. When I can feel into you and me and I come from that place in my communication, then you get to be deeply understood, I get to be deeply understood, and the moment is transformed. The difficulty, the idea that something's wrong here, is dissolved. So I think really coming back to that, that writing, which talks about my dad. My dad had this beautiful way, you know, he, he had all kinds of like faults, I guess, in his life as, as we all do and as, as I do as a man. But he had this beautiful way of, of kind of opening the sphere of curiosity. We'd look at the stars, we'd, we'd overlook misty, misty valleys, we'd look at four-leaf clovers, we'd, we'd read book his, books in haystacks. We'd do all these really unusual things to just kind of experience like what's it like to find beauty in everything. He used to write out maths problems for me and he'd excitedly point to me like, look how beautiful this is. And we'd be, you know, I'd be walking through his door, front room in his house and he'd be like, wait a second, wait a second. And there's some classical music on and he'd be like, listen to this A minor chord coming up. So he was really like just a very curious man. And, and I didn't realise then, but curiosity really is the, it's the language of the heart. The mind is certain, the heart is curious. In knowing that we were about to have a conversation, I actually just was doing some more writing about what's our life for me today and I wrote down, beware certainty. Of course, we want certainty, be beware. We want certainty. It's just that when we get, you know those times with you and someone else where something's happened and you're so, you're so certain, you're so certain about what they were trying to, how they were trying to deceive you, you're so certain about what their motivations were, you're so certain about how they're blah, 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 and they're just this and they're actually just that and there's this like rigidity that comes in us through a certainty about them and that's a beautiful thing to watch for because that is 
that is how we know that we're in what I call conflict mind. The mm. heart's closed, the mind is very active and the mind is looking for a narrative which explains in certain terms exactly what's happened and it's very much me versus you. So you're describing, Fish, some significant influences from your childhood, namely your your father and his passion and his curiosity, and he sounds very, probably not a word he used back then, but mindful and present if he was reading in haystacks and looking at four-leaf clovers and listening for uh, A minors. Tell me something else about your childhood and where do the themes of love and conflict and maybe yearning come from in your younger years? Yeah, well, I immediately just kind of look at the separation of my parents when I was three, three and a half years old. So I think from a very early age, before I could even really understand what might be happening, I I might have even internalised something's wrong. There's a fracture in the relationship. We've been in, I grew up in Geelong, and then we moved to the UK for six months, and mum and dad separated when they were, when we were over there. And we moved back to Sydney with mum. So as a three, three and a half year old, maybe four by then, I was, suddenly dad wasn't there. And dad and mum weren't together. And also I, I could see, I distinctly remember all the times where I would look at my mum and I would just see sadness. And now looking back, I've, I've kind of very much kind of carried, carried that for a lot of the remaining 45 years of my life. So I saw fracture. I saw upset. Um, And then from then on, I saw two human beings who were prepared to work through their own upset and resentment to, to keep coming back into a place where I've always felt like when mum and her new partner and dad and his new partner were together, I still felt like we were a family, even though I very, very much knew that mum and dad were together. In fact, it was quite quickly that I was like, how were you guys ever married? But very much had modelled for me reconciliation, that we could stay open and create like a, a welcoming space for family to exist even in the fracture. That's kind of a profound impact on me because how common is it out there in the world for people through divorce to enter this state of mind of like feeling so completely wronged and to stay there forever and the ex you know the ex partner becomes the kind of like symbol of evil and it doesn't take much to go there because once again in the uncertainty of pain and separation the mind says i've got a i've got a story and it's very certain and it was their fault and how dare they and look at how broken I have, look at all I gave, look at how they never met me. It's very kind of compelling and addictive. Mm-hmm. So instead my parents were able to probably have those experiences in themselves but keep them out of the field of our family, which was pretty amazing. There's a slight contradiction or at least I'm curious because on the one hand you said you noticed an ongoing sadness, and I don't know if you were referring to yourself or your mum. You said initially, as a as a young child, you saw sadness in your mum, but then you said that's something I've carried for forty five odd years of my life. Are you referring to your sadness or her sadness? 
I think what I've carried until I've until I've had the gift of being smashed over the head by a situation about 18 months ago, which I shared with you when we spoke and we might go into, um, I got to see that what I've carried is I'm not okay unless everyone's okay. <laughs> that That's what you learned as a child and you carried that belief and that template with you into your adult life. You cannot be okay unless... Unless everyone else is okay. Which means you'll never be okay. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So the last, probably only the last 18 months of my life is giving myself the the deepest permission to be full of joy, regardless of what state anyone else is in, which when you think of it in terms of the role I play with, you know, I, I sit here day after day with people who are really not okay in their relationships. It's essential for me to be able to be full of joy, even when I sit with people who are in the depths of sorrow and pain and heartache. What also makes that? What, what the handy aspect of my work is that what I do with people always opens their heart and there's always love at the bottom. So it's not like it's not like I have to sit for very long with them in their pain because immediately they start to go, <gasps> and, and what's at the bottom is always love. Even under behaviour that, on the outside looks abusive and narcissistic underneath that is just a yearning the yearning of the heart and yeah we get there pretty quickly what do you do with your pain then you're describing um this newfound love and permission to feel a oh, newfound joy i should say and permission to feel joy but you also feel pain and you also feel grief and sorrow and sadness and every other emotion that fits in the kaleidoscope of human beings yeah there's a couple of things. One is that I, I hold a circle of one. <laughs> I am, for, for the last 13 years, I've held circles of human beings in the corporate market and running rites of passage with teenage, teenage young people, circles of facilitators. Even when I come down to relationship, like a circle of two, like a sacred kind of connection. But, I, but until recently, I've never explored this idea of a circle of one. So I actually... I have times like ritual times with myself where I actually acknowledge to myself what I'm experiencing. I've discovered that actually acknowledging myself for what I'm going through is actually really the only acknowledgement that I can be sure that I can ever get and validation and forgiveness, actually. And, you know, you and your listeners might know those times where you're yearning for closure at the end of a relationship or something and you just... Closure actually consists maybe of like all the things that you wish that they could acknowledge you for, like how much you love them, how much you put in, how much you set aside for them, how much, how willing you were, how much it took. If only they could say all those things to you, you feel like you'd be like, <sighs> and also how much you yearn for their forgiveness about some things that you realise you, you could have done differently. But when we consider those two things, no human being can ever really bring us the depths of acknowledgement that we know we deserve. They can't because they don't know the depth to which we know we deserve it. <laughs> so they'll be approximating some acknowledgement. Only we, only I can acknowledge, for example, the last 18 months, only I can acknowledge the extraordinary courage that it's taken for me to move through what I've had to move through while supporting other people to move through what that you know no no other human being on the planet not even my sisters my mum no one can really know that 
So then with that acknowledgement, with that realisation, it part of my practice is just self-acknowledgement. I actually, you know, it's a very intimate thing to share, but when I go to bed at night, I hold my hands like I'm holding my hand and I talk to myself and I, and I tell myself that I get it and, and I say whatever there is that needs to be said. It might be forgiveness. It might be acknowledgement. It might just be I love you. It might be, you know, that's, that's an unusual thing to hear that a, a 49-year-old man does. But for me, it's my primary, my primary practice is to bring myself safety mm-hmm. no matter what happens out there even with the people that I trust deeply, I can't possibly ever make sure that there's a certainty out there in the world that makes me safe. I actually have to cultivate safety in myself. And when you're holding your own hand and talking to your own self with this level of compassion, and I see you, I guess, it's, I, you know, it's me to me that I see you and I hear you and I'm with you. Yes. Are there voices, stories, noises that come up that dial that down, dilute, drown it out, challenge it, question it? Yeah. Or, or were there? Maybe maybe, maybe there were more and less so now? I think really that, you know, lying there, what comes to me to say is any story that needs to be heard. <laughs> if it might be the kind of voice, the kind of self-judgment which would sabotage me, which would kind of leave me feeling like, you know, that voice that we all have that says, fuck's sake, you know, why did you have to this? Or, you know, you're actually a kind of a shit man because looking back in the past or I don't know why I'm still feeling so upset about X, Y, Z, those kind of voices, I will actually, the, what I try and bring in is just a, a love for those, just to go, yeah, 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 I, I, I hear that. I, I hear that it's difficult that you still feel pain. I understand that, it, you know, you wanted to be further down some road (laughs) than you are about that thing and so there's this kindness and compassion (sighs) i did a really beautiful i spent an online session with someone about a year ago and we did a bit of i tend to hate guided meditations right i i prefer a meditation practice that's not people leading me through the woods and sitting me down at whatever by a river you got to be by a river I want to vomit on my shoes when that starts to happen. But this particular situation, it was quite free. I ended up, in my imagination, I ended up in my granddad's liquid amber tree in his backyard when I was, you know, back when I was kind of six or five or I used to climb the tree with my sisters. I wouldn't make it up to the top, but in this this image that I got, I was at the top, in the top few branches, I climbed up there, adult me climbed up there to see little me up there, climbed up, put my hand on my back and I looked and he was, little me was hunched over something and I looked and he, he kind of like looked at me and thought it was safe to share. So he opened his palms and in his palms was this little bird's nest and in the bird's nest was a bird and under the bird were eggs and I suddenly had this thing of like the eggs were being protected by the bird the bird's nest was, the bird was being protected by the nest. The nest was being held by little me. Little me was being held by big me. Big me had dad inside. Dad had grandfather inside. And I was like this whole thing. It was just like, I need to feel safe. 
That's such a beautiful vision. What came to me then was, um, do you know that what a Russian doll is? It's when the little dolls in the bigger one, the bigger, the bigger. Yeah, it sounds like a, a psychological Russian doll, but it's describing and honouring the intergenerational pain and trauma and yearnings and safety and, and all the layers. Yes. Yeah. The little guy, me at the top, just wanted to be this safe place for this nest. And little adult, like adult me, could actually just like honor him for how much he wants everything to be okay for everybody. Mm-hmm. And that he needs safety for that. He, he mm-hmm. actually just needs safety. The person that brings that safety, the only person that brings that safety is is you. And there's some kind of re-parenting and that's not to throw our parents out <laughs> with, a, you know, criticism. It's to say that really the only one that has that power is is us. Yeah, yeah, it's but, so true. And that's that's a very powerful thing to take into the idea of romantic relationship, any relationship, but let's look at romantic relationship. If I get clear about what opens me and leaves me feeling safe and I take steps every day towards that, then it will lead me into relationships that feel good and away from relationships that feel not good. We learn very early that our safety should be everyone else's concern. And if and if I feel unsafe in a relationship or just uncared for or uncertain or whatever, then it's something that someone else needs to do differently. And that's that's okay to think like that. It's just that we're waiting forever for that to happen because they're in their own world trying to make sure their life is okay. You know, a lot of the people who come to me, when I say, what's your complaint about your partner, they've, they've got it all sorted. It's like he or she doesn't do this and if they only do this and they keep doing this and I, they leave me feeling this and I get it. It's just that when we start turning towards ourselves and saying, what do I yearn to feel in relationship and what actions can I take to make sure I feel that most of every moment, then we really start to lead ourselves by heart, <laughs> lead by heart. Mm in order to feel good and if they can't meet us there then we're like totally get it totally get it it's my my safety is my concern and i'm inviting you into understanding how to create that with me but i don't expect you to it's not your responsibility i think our listeners will have quite a few questions around that but you've also made reference now twice to something shifting in you 18 months ago and as you said you and i talked about that offline so I would like you or invite you to lead that conversation, not with the hope of dredging up the past, but because you've just described that something quite seminal shifted for you. Mm. There was a breakthrough in that, in that crisis. Yeah, it really has been the moment, and by moment I mean 18-month-long moment. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like there was any particular epiphany or there maybe there were just a million in a row, but it's the moment where I finally learned that I could hold me. That was in contrast to what had happened, which was a relationship that I, was, I felt very deeply invested in dissolved not through anything I did or she did but a very difficult event in her life that changed the nature of who she was in a 10-minute phone call, a very tragic loss 
then this period of time where I was trying to relate to her as the woman who had loved me and had re- had been receiving my love fully I wanted I was relating to her as that human whereas she was over in a different world she'd become a completely different human being as a result of what she'd gone through and so we were in two completely different places emotionally and psychologically and so happens that we were on other sides of Australia and then covid hit so that geographical distance was set in stone and for me that was a period of six or seven months of the deepest distress because I was just wanting to have it back to the love that we shared and so I was in resistance to what had actually happened which is she had she had disconnected to the feeling of love that we shared it went like it evaporated or was buried or whatever overshadowed whatever And so that whole situation for me was the deepest abandonment I've ever experienced. The the experience in me was abandonment. I now now can see she didn't abandon me. She just just had to care, tend to her own life, right? Can you say more about abandonment and what that means to you prior to her? Sure. Well, you know, in that experience, the, the, the narrative, the certainty that I came up with in my mind was, how can you turn away from me? You know, see what we shared, see how I continue to hold you as my queen through your darkest times. How can you turn away from me? Like, how can you say that my love is not good enough? How can you say I'm not who you want to be with? How can you, how do you turn away is the neat little narrative. And like here, you know, from the outside, you can hear the victimhood there. You can like, she's done something to me. Well, actually, I hear little. I hear little little fish, not not the victim, but little fish. And I'm imagining that you felt that before. Yeah, yeah. I think I absolutely did. I think, like you know, it's not a stretch of the imagination to feel that little fish felt like where did where did mum and dad both go? Like dad's not here, and mum's kind of like in pain. Where did everyone go? What about me? Um, yeah. So anyway, I mean, I don't, I don't spend too long dwelling on that, but it definitely, it's definitely shaped, shaped my life. And it gave me this big red abandonment button that that situation pushed so hard. And I was blown to smithereens in a way that other people may not have been. Other people might have just been like, okay, tragic event. I get it. She's needing to move on. She's needing to turn towards something who doesn't, someone who doesn't remind her. Um, but for me, it was like, it was like the culmination of all pain in my life, just smash. So rather than just fall into a pit, I just started to hold myself in that and and to allow it and to talk to myself and to journal a lot and to reach out for all the people who hold me so incredibly. I've just got the most amazing community and family and, and friends and yoga community and I'm just so held. So I just started to plug into how held I am and by the earth and by the ocean and by my breath and really had to practice every day coming back to that notion of like big me with my hand in the centre of little me's back just saying, I've got you. 
and I've I'd never really had me before. Like I'd never mm. really I'd never really had this sense that I I am here for me. And I yeah, I've, I've, it might sound a bit twee, but I, I have never really loved me. And now I'm like, wow, this feels good. <laughs> because there'll be so many people who listen to this who will have their own version of that story. It may not have been catalyzed by the crisis that she experienced, but your experience will be familiar. And you also say that you've experienced that numerous times. You talked about three-year-old you and 48-year-old you, maybe 47-year-old you, whatever it was. But I, I know that there were multiple experiences between three and 48 that, that mirrored or felt like abandonment. But you weren't able to do that at those different junctures. So what was it? Di- what, what happened at this time that you learnt something new about yourself and your capacity to love yourself? And what can others do who feel stuck with that, who are still looking for, for external forces to rescue, save, soothe and love them? I would have to say that a primary tool for me I'm going to say that there's two. One is I, through the incredible teachings of yoga that I've been immersed in for the last seven years, it was new, but really I have dived so completely in, um, give us an understanding of how to use the breath to change our nervous state. So I was able to four or five or six times a day lie on my bed, rest my hands on my belly, watch my breath rise and fall in my belly. Every time my mind went off into the story of crisis and how dare this and how could I this and what am I going to do about this and look how sad I am and will I ever stop crying, just come back into my hands, just watch the belly rise and fall and then start to focus on my out-breath and get to a point where at the end of the out-breath I can just feel this point of emptiness and I can feel the bed underneath me and the earth rising up to hold me and the breath is going to breathe me. I don't have to... I don't have to plan it. I don't have to insure against it not happening. So I just led myself into a place where I could actually just completely surrender everything and I didn't fall through space. The earth held me and I didn't die because the breath breathed me and that was probably the most profound thing. And I had to do that hour by hour, day after day, week by week, month by month until I started to kind of go, actually, I'm not crying anymore. (laughs) I wonder if, um, because what you just described then is what you would have done pre-three-year-old you. The The infant fish would have done that intuitively and naturally until our breath becomes shallower and we're less present with it. And then we take it for granted because we think, well, everyone's breathing. I think there'll be a lot of listeners thinking, what, I've been breathing my whole life and I'm still in pain. How can it be about my breath? But there's a difference between breathing and breath. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I don't know whether when I talk about safety people can relate, but it was it's the safest place I can ever find is when my breath goes so soft and long and I and right at the end of the out breath, before the in-breath comes in, there's this moment of nothingness and there's nothing required of me and I don't have to be anyone or any certain thing and I don't have to make anything happen and it's just the safest thing for me. It's like I can actually just 
take my hands off the entire wheel of my life <laughs> and everything's okay there. The, ironically, the breath is always with us, but ironically, we don't have any sense of how to use the breath to change our nervous state until we start to inquire in, in that way. So what's also happening on the out-breath is I'm leading my nervous system into the parasympathetic response, which is rest and digest. So that was important because I am very renowned for ruminating about pain in the past. Hello, human. <laughs> yeah, hello, human. I'm not so notorious for worrying about the future. I don't tend to be an anxious person, although I, that situation certainly did bring some anxiety into my world. But I tend to look back and go, oh, God, what does that mean about me? You know. Um, so... A conscious breath practice actually just brings us back into the present moment. And if we're really in the present moment, there is no future or past. And so everything that's been, is just like it's gone. It's out of our reach anyway. So wanting to have some agency over the past is will lead us down rabbit holes of pain. And the future's not arrived yet, so we've got no agency there either. So this teaching of Atta Yoga Anushasanam talks about now, the moment of now is where yoga happens. So really it was just bringing myself back to I'm safe, I'm held, I'm breathed. And then I would do that and then 10 minutes later I'd be in the kitchen and I'd, the, the thoughts would start again and then I'd have to lie down again and practice that. So it was over and over and over and over and over again. I was just growing a sense of mastery at coming back to the moment. And now what does that look like, that breath work for you? Uh, I practice it less often but use it when I, when I need to. Um, I have a meditation practice that comes and goes and it's very much centred on that sense of effortlessness of breath um so it's still very present in my life i'm just not using it five or six times a day like i was in the in the sort of crux of the matter the other really significant tool i had was but there's a bunch of tools i won't go into but they're communication tools that expand and i use them very much in my coaching beyond the simplistic simplistic narrative that says i've been left into what actually was the beauty in her heart that had her take certain actions that, that impacted me, that left me feeling left, what she was yearning for is actually beautiful. What she was yearning for in not being in that relationship anymore is not to leave me bereft. <laughs> she was yearning for peace and space and healing and joy in her own life. And I love that. When I use a tool that invites me to feel into the beauty in her yearning behind the things that left me in pain, then the pain is teased open and separate from her yearning. And then I can feel love for what she, I want joy for her forever. Even if we never speak again, I just want the deepest joy for her. And so her yearning is beautiful. And certain pain in me happened and I could validate that as well, but I didn't tie them together. The conflict mind ties them together. Instead, this model says what you were yearning for is beautiful and I experienced pain and they're untied. Yeah, I mean, I even see that as you describe that perhaps even more simply that she was moving towards her own needs. Yes. As opposed to moving away from you. Yes, absolutely. But, but as you say, we join those dots. Yeah, she was moving to peace and uh, a sense of not having to carry my well-being, um, a sense of relief, a sense of turning towards 
something that represented more freedom for her, freedom from her pain. Yeah, all of which I just, I love that. My heart just goes, yes, it's like I'm on the cheer squad cheering her on. I want that for her. So if that was true and I was in pain, that was a little less bound up. I was a little less tied up to the pain when I could realise that I had pain and it's not at all what she wanted. And I think one of the things that, you know, we discussed or that I wrote down when we were talking about having a chat was the pain, I think it said something like the pain, the pain that we're in is not at all what they want for us. Yes, in a hundred percent, this is another another fish gem. In a hundred percent of conflicts between us and them, the pain we are in as a result of what they did is not at all what they wanted for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One hundred percent. That might sound like a stretch, but I'm. I give you that data from my experience of thirteen years of working with human beings. Never once. If we look deep enough into what are they yearning for behind what they did, we will always find that what they were yearning for has a beauty to it and it's distinct from the pain that we were left with. And that is, I don't know if I could rank the kind of like aspects of the work that I do, but once we get that the pain I'm in, the pain I'm in is valid and it's not what they wanted, then suddenly our heart can open to them in a way that the narrative of you wanted my pain, that just comes to us automatically, that gives us a lot of suffering. To think that someone is the kind of person who wanted us to suffer will keep us locked in pain forever. And your listeners might go, oh, I never make that decision. But I want to tell you it's given to us. It's an unconscious mechanism that arrives to us without us ever choosing it. The story of ill intent. You're a control freak. You're lazy. You're selfish. You're unattentive. You're, you know, this idea that you are, there's something bad in you in what you want. And another fish gem, an asshole is simply a good person I'm yet to deeply understand. That's on me, not them. Yeah, and that's, that speaks to that same thing. Like when we have this idea that someone is a shit person, it's based on the fact that we think what they're wanting is cruel or unkind or insensitive or racist or selfish or whatever. So really where where we see the certainty in that statement, like you are a such and such, We've the certainty comes from having decided what their intentions were. And let me tell you, in that, in that mind frame, we've decided that their intentions are not at all as noble as our intentions. Mm-hmm. We're like, oh, I just want all the good things and they want all the shit things. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we label someone. We make an analysis or an assertion or an assassination about that, what, what, what that kind of person is. How does that help us, Fish? When we make that ill intent assertion, it creates deeper conflict because, you know, when I, when I say to you, Sabina, you're, you were really insensitive then, your intention is to never be insensitive. You never, you never set out with the intention of insensitivity. So you, the only option you have when I say that to you is to defend yourself, right? You're like, no, hang on, wait a second. So you defend yourself 
and I, I attack you, but I'm actually yearning to be understood and so are you. So we actually fracture, we pull further apart. So learning to at least wipe the slate clean regarding their intention, learning to be curious. I wonder what it was behind their hurtful deeds or words. I wonder what beauty they were yearning for. And as we look deeply enough, and I'm not going to say that it's easy sometimes to find it, sometimes sometimes it pops right up and like, oh, my God, actually they just wanted X, Y, Z. Sometimes it's obvious, but more often it really takes a stretch of our, it takes being led by the heart. I wonder what they were yearning for. What if they said those hurtful words because they were wanting to be understood? What if they really wanted me to get their pain? What if they just wanted some safety because they were feeling so attacked? What if they were just defending themselves against something? What if, what if they were actually yearning to include me, even though it felt I felt excluded? But maybe there was a maybe I could actually start to imagine that there was goodness in their heart that was distinct from how I received it, and mm. that's a game changer. Because listen out in the world for the conversation that says there are ill intent in those people over there. The vax, anti-vax, if mm-hmm. we can even frame it in that those oppositional terms, but if we took someone who was st- stoically vax, pro-vax, and someone who was sto- stoically anti-vax, there is an aspect of that conversation, at least the, the sort of like mainstream argument, fights even on the street, protests, where the vax person will look at the anti-vax person and say, you have ill intent. You're wanting to put us at risk. You're naive. You're this, you're that. You're a conspiracy theorist. You're whatever. All this ill intent thrown at that person. So anyone over here has to defend against that and go, you don't even understand. And the anti-vax person will look at the vax person and say, you're being misled, you're naive, you're da-da-da, you're just supporting government control, you're, which is all Ill, Ill intent. So conflict is characterised by us being certain that the other person, they have ill intent. I have good intent, you have ill intent. Mm. Actually, it's, I'm going to say it is simply never true. Mm. Because if you sit down with either of those two parties, what you find out is that they're yearning for safety, they're yearning for agency, they're yearning for freedom, they're yearning for validation, they're yearning to move through difficulty. It's just that the strategies they've chosen are different, but they're actually, you would be amazed at how similar the intentions are. Yeah, belonging and acceptance are high on people's lists as well. And um, one of the ways I describe that is that behind every criticism, there is an unmet need and a yearning. Yes. Which is um, nowhere near as eloquent as the way you've just described it. <laughs> but well, it is. I mean, and the and the thing is, it's so, that's beautifully put, Serena. And what 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 where we go wrong is that we respond to the criticism. Not the need, not the unmet need. Yes, and and it's it's just it's not very well concealed, by the way. It's not it's not hard to see, but it's very easy to react to the criticism. So if someone says, "Fish, you're you're like you're flaky," or "You're a fraud," I'm straight in defending myself against that, rather than 
hearing what they've said, their analysis is an invitation for me to understand that there's an unmet need, like you say, a pain that needs tending to and a yearning that needs tending to. And that mm. when we can learn to do that in the heat of the moment, every, what did I write down today? Fighting is beautiful. Fighting is beautiful because when someone is fighting, they're fighting to be understood about the pain that they're in and about what they're yearning for. And mm -hmm. so if we can take the fight in someone and, and stay present and open and listen for what they're yearning to be understood about, it's such a beautiful thing because they're fighting to be understood because they're fighting to be open. They're fighting to stay open-hearted to us by having their needs tended to. Mm -hmm. So it's the most beautiful invitation. If someone says, you fucking, it's a most beautiful invitation saying, I'm close to you. I want to open to you. I need things to be tended to in my world. And when we're willing to start tending there, they open. And it sounds a little like we're just trying to meet their needs and not ours. But when they open, we can get our needs met. Where does your passion lie and what's next for fish in the kind of work that you're doing and wanting to do? I want every human being on the planet to touch the love behind the pain. <laughs> Those who are tired of me versus you, I want to share <laughs> how quickly we can transform that with a bit of practice. And you're not just talking in intimate uh, romantic relationships you're talking parent child and workspaces i work with a bunch of parents with particularly teenage this work is amazing with parents and teenage kids because you've had teens you've still got one teenagehood <laughs> is is intrinsically oppositional right the teenager is pushing the parent away saying i'm not you and that's that's a developmentally appropriate phase of their life it's just that as a parent to be opposed like that feels like they're defying us. So we get upset and angry and hurt and maybe we wouldn't say hurt, but I think there's hurt in a lot of parents when, the, when their teenagers say, screw you. There's rejection, not just defiance, but that's how it lands. Yeah, because actually that's, that's what the teen is doing. I am not you. I will do all these things that define myself as not you. I hate you, actually, or I'm going to put you in this there because then I want to, then I get to be different to that. Then I get to be me. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, these tools are handy because to navigate that opposition in a way that opens hearts rather than leads greater into conflict is amazing, is profound. Also, workplace relationships, you know, who doesn't have the, that difficult person at work who, you know, we've decided is just a control freak or a narcissist or doesn't seem to give a shit about our needs or whatever. And sibling relationships, like there's so much in families, the source of so much conflict because we're so, we're so close and it's bound up in so much pain often or disappointment or favouritism or, you know. And I have a lot of people who actually come to me and work, you know, they, they've chosen their romantic relationship perhaps and then we get halfway through the program and then they start to go, oh, God. And I'm like, what? And they're like, well, I can see a conversation with my mom or my dad coming on. And they're like, I never thought it was possible, but now I'm actually sensing the freedom that's on the other side because I can see how I can open them and be open with them. And that's actually probably what we both 
are desperate for but have never known how to navigate. And the most, you know, the most heartbreaking thing is that we just have not known how to open each other. We've never not wanted to be open to each other, whoever it is, to approach difficulty and to talk about difficulty has always felt like it just triggers more difficulty. So we tend to just not talk about the difficulty mm. or we like we kick and scream and, th- you know, we have to be like assertive, like just state our needs and they can go screw themselves or let's not just talk about it because I don't want it to make it worse. And we've just never been shown the very graceful path through difficulty where I get to talk about what is so important for me to be understood about that would normally upset you and you'd get defensive, but I've got these ways of expressing it to you that you're just going to be, I feel so validated and understood. Do you prefer to work, and if people are listening, uh, how would they get in touch with you? And we'll put some some information in the show notes too, but, but you could say something about that now. Are they coming individually to do the work themselves to take back to their relationships or are they bringing their other person that they're feeling the conflict with? I have individuals who are not in a romantic relationship that I work with and the benefit there is that they get to find some freedom in situations that have happened in the past that have been all bound up in like pain and intentional mush together. It's like I've been so wronged. So lots of freedom there to be had and skills to arm them for passionate, open-hearted relationship in the future. I work with some individuals who are in a romantic relationship um, but who want to do this work themselves, which I'm always very, I think it's so courageous to say I want to lead my relationship with my communication. I think that's incredible because it's very easy to think like I'm, I'm actually a good communicator. It must be them. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's just very easy for us to go into that place. And I work with some couples who want to do this together. Mm-hmm. So it's it's every it's it's everyone, isn't it? It could be a parent who wants to talk about their child, even if their child doesn't want to get on board. It could be people often one of the questions that comes up for people is they say, What if what if they, whoever they are, what if they are not willing? And I'm like, Well, I'm gonna show you how to elicit willingness in them. Because you'll trigger safety. Yeah, you'll trigger safety and they will be compelled. They'll be like, oh, um, hello, this feels different. And it might take some time, but it also might be immediate. When we learn to create an environment that's not understand me, it's I'm over in your world understanding you and inviting you in to understand me, then the fight goes. It's such a message filled with hope, like every relationship has the capacity and the the possibility of repair and connection and love. Yeah. Is there ever a time when separation, estrangement, leaving a job, (laughs) I'm trying to think across different domains, is an appropriate and healthy step? Yeah, absolutely. It's got nothing to do with me. Like I, I'm, ne- I'm not in the business of deciding what direction people should take in any of their relationships. I'm very much in the business of deciding the, the field of their communication as they navigate whatever they want to navigate. So open-hearted, compassionate, conscious communication might lead to the end of relationships, but it will do so in a way that there is so much love present. 
sometimes we're bound in relationship by the feeling of being so hard done by that we have to stick at it to kind of like feel as if we can rectify it or feel as if like we're still waiting for them to realize that they're the asshole, whatever. We can get really bound and caught up in the pain. But when we when we foster a field of love, like I feel like I do with my ex-wife of 15 years, um, then the form of the relationship is let's let's see. Let's see what feels good to us. But the field, like the how we, I guess it's a stance where my heart is open. I see the goodness in you and me. It's, it's namaste. It's, namaste means the goodness in me sees the goodness in you. It's like the love in me sees the love in you, which is not to say I forgive you for everything you've done. It's just to say that the pain I'm in has nothing to do with what you wanted. <laughs> mm. And the pain you're in is not what I wanted. There's pain for both of us and we're yearning for beautiful things. So from that vantage point, the form that our relationship takes is maybe a little more clear. Mm. How, how would your ex-wife describe you? How would Annie describe me? Gosh, that's such a good question. I feel like messaging her now and getting a live, a live answer. <laughs> I think she might say willing willing to grow, kind and compassionate, increasingly trustworthy, <laughs> a bit of a nutbag. <laughs> and I think she would say that she loves me or feels blessed that we are on this co-parenting journey together. And then in private she might have some other kind of less noble things to say. <laughs> <laughs> but w wouldn't it be a different world if everyone that had experienced pain and conflict with each other could describe themselves, uh, describe each other in those terms? I love that. That's, that's really powerful. That's a beautiful, very open, very vulnerable share from you. That comes back to that initial piece of writing of mine that you shared. It's this, what does it take to remain open and curious about each other? rather than the certainty that naturally comes up mm -hmm. to let go of the asshole that we know they are and become more, more and more curious about what haven't I yet felt into the understanding of which would open my heart to them. That sounds like the perfect place to finish. Um, and, and we do ask a final question on this pod, but I can't go past actually finishing where we where we started I started to read what you'd written but I didn't finish it because I I ended at the place that that touched me so deeply about teach me of your humanness but then you go on to say tell me what is restless and unreconciled within you I need wonder I crave awe I want questions we've no language for yes now your teachings are made for me now I can curl up Rest, be immersed, now I can dissolve to my radiant, raw, courageous teachers in all walks of life. I love you. I'm glad I wrote that. I'm glad you did too. And I was frightened you were going to say I, I, I took it, for, I, I, it's plagiarised from some wise elder that I met along my way, but it's your, it's, your, it's your musings and your reflections and they moved me so deeply. They moved me to reach out to you, to, to cold call you, to share that I was touched by your words, which has led to this conversation. And just 
so as not to let my co my my co-host Mads down, who's not with us today, I will ask our final question, and th- and that is what we ask at the end of every Human Cogs interview. Who do you think Fish is doing human well? Who's doing human well? Wow! I sat in a room full of yoga teacher trainers this t- trainees this morning and noticed that striving to make sense of being in this world takes, I think, takes the most extraordinary courage. It takes such extraordinary courage to exist. And maybe I'm just like, you know, spend too much time thinking about this stuff, but like to love anyone who loves. Holy shit. Nice work. Because how difficult is that to do? How difficult is that to take risks? How difficult is it to feel what that, what the terrain that we're led through, the uncertainty, the fear and the exposure to open our hearts? So to those who love, yay, it's a miracle actually. And yet nearly every human on the planet does it in some shape or form. Yeah. And we're, we're even doing it when we're hating. So maybe we're all doing human well to some degree. Yeah. yeah. Fish, thank you. Loved being in conversation with you and I know we could talk for, for hours, but you've shared some some really beautiful and insightful learnings and insights and musings that I know will be very meaningful and thought-provoking to our listeners. I've so really loved it too, Sabina. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.